Welcome to the channel. As promised, this is Plenary Session, ASCO Updates, Video Edition. I'm going to be talking about the dynamic study circulating tumor DNA in adjuvant stage 2 colon cancer, and this is by popular request. Now, first of all, if you're listening to this on the audio feed Plenary Session, I encourage you to stop what you're doing right now and get over to YouTube. Get on the video feed. I've got so many visuals. I've got slides. This is really a full lecture experience. You're not going to want to listen to it just on audio. You're not going to get the most from it. So I encourage you to go over to the video feed. You can come, we'll come back to the audio. Don't you worry on the plenary session feed. Next point. On this channel, in plenary session, we've talked about so many studies from historical control arms to poor control arm quality and randomized studies, post-protocol therapy, crossover. These can be tricky. This particular study dynamic is the most tricky of all of them. I mean, we're talking about a biomarker used to omit chemotherapy. This is, I think, the highest level of uh, sophistication in study methodology, and it's going to take a lot to understand it. So if you don't get it all the first time, watch the video again. If you don't get it all the second time, sleep on it, think about it, read the paper, return to the video. I hope that this will be instructive to you and that this will actually be something novel and informative, unlike a lot of the things I hear. All right, let's turn to a dynamic. This is the big, big talk of the town. I see everyone on Twitter praising dynamic and they say, wow, isn't it wonderful that we finally have a blood-based test that allows us to omit chemotherapy in people who don't benefit from it? And I want to say just at the outset, there's nobody who wants to omit treatments that don't work more than me. That's my whole MO. I mean, I've written a book about it, Ending Medical Reversal. We've done multiple broad-scale broad scale umbrella reviews on this topic. Nobody wants to omit things that don't work more than this guy right here. And we all want to do that. But, but, this is really a key question, which is that in stage two colorectal cancer, there's a current way we decide on giving adjuvant treatment. Is that method better supplanted by circulating tumor DNA? Is it better to use circulating tumor DNA than the current way we're doing it using a series of histopathologic hallmarks and sort of clinical hallmarks that tell you high risk? Um, is, that, is it better to do this? We have give fewer chemotherapy, achieve the same outcomes. And then finally, as some people allude to, should we do this in addition to what we're doing? Should we incorporate CTDNA in addition to what we're doing? Um, and I think it opens up a whole bunch of thorny issues. Non-inferiority study, biomarker used to omit chemotherapy. You're talking a very sophisticated paper. I'm going to break it down for you. Let's hit it. Circulating tumor DNA analysis guiding adjuvant therapy in stage 2 colon cancer. The dynamic investigators, and they're clever. They know how to brand themselves. Before we get into the paper, we've got to level set. Level set. Level set is the business term people use to say these are things that we all should know by now. So I hope you know them by now. I mean, I assume that you have some knowledge in colorectal cancer and adjuvant treatment before you're watching this channel. Otherwise, it's really going to be a bit Greek to you, but I'll do my best. Okay. This is the NCCN guidelines. I recently had occasion to pull up the most recent NCCN guidelines for stage two colon cancer. And here's what you find you find that. Always. I want to point out that observation is always an acceptable option. You could consider Zolota, consider 5-FU Leucovorin, you could consider Zolota, you could consider Fulfox, consider Kbox. You could consider these things, but it's not saying you have to do these things, and that's gonna, we're going to come back to that. The other important thing to talk about is the importance of mismatch repair proficiency and deficiency. I think we know that in the adjuvant setting, deficiency actually constitutes a good prognosis. I think there is data that fluoropyrimidines by themselves, Zolota or 5-FU, given to a deficient mismatch repair tumor may not be beneficial, may even be harmful, may even be harmful. Now, as this indicates that if you have 
mismatch repair deficiencies that they're actually recommending observation. They're not actually recommending chemotherapy in this guideline. Um, if you have proficient, they're willing to consider, okay? That's important. It'll be a little bit different in ASCO because I think some people are under the belief. I don't know where this belief came from. It came from the celestial bodies. This belief that oxaliplatin will undo whatever badness 5-FU does in the case of mismatch repair deficiency. We'll come to that. But let's first, this is the NCCN. Okay, keep it in your mind. Don't forget, don't forget. This is the ASCO. The ASCO, they're doing their own evidence reviews. It's interesting, ASCO. They, they want to push the, they don't, I don't think they're too happy with the NCCN maybe. They want to do their own style. But the NCCN, of course, is a compendia which, compare, which compels Medicare by law to pay for something. ASCO, I don't think, has compendia status, so they don't do that. But here's how they break down stage two. Stage two, you got your two A's, which is the T3 cancer. Since stage two B and two C, you got T4. Of course, it's all N0 by definition. And of course, one of the high-risk features, you didn't cut out enough lymph nodes, et cetera. And they're saying if you have proficient mismatch repair, um, uh, sorry, uh, without high-risk features or deficient mismatch repair without high-risk features, don't give chemotherapy, okay? Um, and then they have a number of things with high-risk features, but proficient, consider single-agent fluoroperimidines. This is the part that's a little bit di different. With high-risk features, but deficient in mismatch repair, they actually say oxali may be considered. They're under the belief that they've received from above high that oxali overcomes. I mean, I make a joke, but of course these are based on sort of non-prospective randomized. These are retrospective post-hoc kind of analyses that are subject to many, many limitations. And so if you put a gun to my head and you said you got somebody with a high-risk feature, stage two disease, but they have deficient mismatch repair, do they benefit from oxaliplatin and 5-FU and Fulfox? What am I gonna say? I'm gonna say, perfectly honest with you, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. That's the right answer, but um, it's hard to have the right answer these days. It's a lot easier to puff up your chest and say you know okay and of course for t4 you know you can see the recommendations there i think they also say always this is worth considering it always says may 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 um you know i guess only t4 proficient mmr they say should so there's only one should recommendation up here but it's mostly may and i think they may even be overplaying their hand next slide boom next slide is they've actually done sort of a, a, a meta-analytic systematic review on a number of questions, and they have these sort of absolute effect estimates that come from the literature. These come from papers that are circa, circa 19 diggity two. They're, they're old papers, you know? These are old papers that don't really have valence and significance for the modern landscape, which I'm gonna to talk to you about in a second. And what do I wanna point out? Well, one, they have this little column called quality of evidence, and in there they have heterogeneity. Heterogeneity, of course, measured by the I squared on a, a random effects or fixed effects meta-analysis, and uh, they show you that heterogeneity. I don't know why they're, they're bungling these two things. I mean, you know, heterogeneity is important to know. Side note, there's some people who, even if the heterogeneity I squared is 100%, they're still going to run that meta-analysis and tell you what the IFR is, aren't you? <laughs> rookie mistake. Okay, rookie mistake. Okay, anyway. But quality of evidence, I think, is, you know, there's Cochrane bias tools and there are a number of bias tools. And here's what I want to point out here on quality of evidence. Low, 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 very low, 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 very low, low, very low. Okay, very low. Okay, we're talking low-quality evidence here. This is all low-quality evidence in this space. Whether or not any of these high-risk features really identify the people who benefit from adjuvant chemotherapy, both in terms of DFS and in terms of what people really care about living longer, living better, overall survival or health-related quality of life, very, very low-quality evidence here. This is why stage two is a total, total disaster, to be honest with you. I don't think anyone really knows for certain who benefits from what. I think that's the bottom line. Next slide. This is the best paper. How come you didn't read this paper already? I remember where I was on that fateful day in 2016 when I first saw this paper and I felt a little tingle because the title was 
was really the kind of thing I wanted to, I like to hear. Should the benefit of adjuvant chemotherapy and colon cancer be reevaluated? And the really, the reason I really liked it is it's one of those rare instances in biomedicine where you have an inkling, an inkling of something, and then somebody comes along and articulates it fully fleshed out for you that kind of fits that inkling that you've been having and it helps you clarify your own thinking. And for me, this paper was that. And this is a brilliant paper. I won't belabor it, but I'll just read two key quotes, okay? One, the present guidelines, and this is 2016, by the way, this is 2022, six years have passed. And if anything, the challenges in this paper have only gotten worse with time, okay? Only gotten worse with time. Here's what it says. The present guidelines for adjuvant chemotherapy in stage two colon cancer with and without risk factors in stage three disease are based on recurrence risks from the past. They are much lower today, although we do not know precisely how much lower. The reasons are mainly better surgery and better perioperative staging, where many patients with metastatic disease have been quote-unquote converted from synchronous to metachronous disease. Even if the relative gains for administering adjuvant chemotherapy with or without oxaliplatin are the same as those shown in trials, even if the relative benefit is the same, the absolute gains are less than they were, and they may be too low to recommend therapy. But of course, the thing people don't understand about biomedicine is that there is no assurance that a relative risk reduction will be preserved when you get to very, very low absolute risks. There are countervailing effects of things, and the absolute risk reduction may even approach zero fast, even if the relative risk reduction for some surrogate endpoint or, or, or midpoint biological sequela are preserved. They're really raising a very provocative point. You should read the paper. I mean, obviously, we have better scanning now. Because of better scanning, we have Will Rogers' effect, which means that somebody who historically would have been a stage three is now a stage four, or a stage two is now a stage three. And what that does is actually improves five-year survival in both disease categories, lowers disease recurrence in both disease categories. This is the Will Rogers phenomenon, also known as stage migration. Um, watch a video on it. Uh, read my book, Malignant, which I'll talk about in the last slide, which will actually talk about it. Uh, you need to really have a good grasp of this. Next point, the number needed to treat is high, and thus many patients will unnecessarily be harmed. Today, we must reevaluate the need for administering routine adjuvant chemotherapy in many patients with colon cancer when they are receiving high-quality multidisciplinary care. So before we even get to dynamic, I think you have equipoise right now to run a randomized control trial in people in whom the doctor actually thinks they need chemotherapy and randomize in stage two disease and randomize them to chemotherapy and no chemotherapy and actually measure disease DFS in the modern era with modern staging and modern and modern surveillance and modern drugs, which are slightly, we can say slightly better, especially for MSI high, better for MSI high. You got to concede that to me, Keno 177 people. Okay, next slide. This is a randomized control trial dynamic. It's a phase two multicenter randomized control trial of biomarker-driven adjuvant therapy, okay? They're randomizing you two to one to have the disease managed by the ctDNA results versus the histopathologic, clinicopathologic sort of high-risk features. They don't actually, I don't think, compel the doctor to obey those things. They give him some leeway. I think from my reading of the, at least the manuscript, I didn't read the full protocol, so listeners, correct me if I'm wrong in the, in the, in the comments. And then they do two-to-one randomization. I got to say, you people with your two-to-one, you don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you're doing with two-to-one. You don't know why you're doing it, and you don't know what you're doing with it. You say you're doing it to increase enrollment in your trials, but we're going to publish something on this topic. We're going to publish something on this topic. I don't like to see your two-to-one. I like to see one-to-one. -one. I like my power optimized by sample size, okay? I don't like suboptimal power, okay? And this is suboptimal. And, uh, and, and if anyone wants to argue with me, you can argue with me in, in the comments, but... Um, no, you're not going to persuade me. I mean, I've read so much on this, and uh, we've done so much work that's coming soon. Boy, I can't wait. Can't wait, but we'll talk about two to one. Trial oversight. 
The trial was initiated by investigators at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute of okay this and responsible this, but here's the key. Using the safe sequencing system, triple S, all capitals, tumor-informed personalized DNA assays, and that was done at the Ludwig Center at Hopkins, the Ludwig Center. Now, this trial has the appearance that there is no commercial influence. This is not funded by pharma. In fact, it actually says that all of the authors wrote the paper. So, you know what? Hats off to that. You wrote your own paper. Congratulations. I've done that for every of the 350 papers we published, but okay, okay, you're good for you. You wrote the other paper, good. It's about good for doing a journal. I'm happy to see it, but I do want to point out that this is not something devoid of commercial influence. This is a gold mine. This is the gold mine. The gold mine is these blood-based tests. Moving these blood-based tests into your care is the gold mine. This is what they want. This is what many, many commercial entities want. Next slide, boom. The SafeSeqS technology has been licensed by Exact Sciences through Thrive Early Detection. The latter was formed with a $110 million in Series A funding, the largest investment ever for Hopkins licensed technology. Exact acquired Thrive for $2.1 billion. There's a lot of money at stake here. I suspect that this may be spun out as a commercial entity. It may come from Exact Sciences. We don't know exactly, but I think somebody's going to be making a lot of money from this soon. Somebody's going to make a lot of money. And when somebody's going to be making a lot of money, we, who are not making a lot of money and have the honor and stewardship of recommending things to people in real life, have to ask tough questions. All right, now to the paper. Randomized control trial, 2 to 1, 147 people in one arm, standard management, 294 people in one arm. And the key point they're saying is that, look, we're going to show you our DFS is the same. Don't worry about that. I got that for you. I got that DFS. It's going to be the same for you. But I'm going to do it with half as much adjuvant chemotherapy. So this is their first point. Table 2, adjuvant chemotherapy received 28% in the standard management arm and 15% in their arm. We've halved it, man. We've halved it. Half as much chemotherapy, same results. Isn't that better? Seems that way. But... First thing I want to point out is we're going to keep coming back to this. Is it really going to be 15% in the real world? And let me show you one more thing. Boom. Next slide. Look down a little bit lower. If you are on the standard management, only four out of those 41 people, sorry, only 10% of the people getting chemotherapy were getting oxaliplatin-based doublets. And the vast majority were getting 5-FU. The vast majority were getting 5-FU. Okay. But in the other arm, it's 62% are getting the oxaliplatin doublet, and only 38% are getting 5-FU. And actually, in terms of raw numbers, point number one, you're getting more oxali when you get this little, when you use this blood-based screening, you use this blood-based biomarker pairing adjuvant chemo. You're getting more oxali. You're getting almost three times as much oxali. It's 2.7% risk of oxaliplatin if you are on the control arm of this study. It's 9.5% risk of oxaliplatin if you are on the intervention arm of this study. You are getting more oxali. You are putting yourself on a road that's more likely to give you oxaliplatin. Why do I care so much about this? Because you know what? For all the limits of 5-FU, that little bit of vasospasm that occasionally happens, um, you know, for all the limits of Zolota, which has more limits, I think, the hand-foot syndrome, the real thing people don't want with adjuvant is oxaliplatin-induced neuropathy. They don't want oxaliplatin-induced neuropathy. Are you playing games with me? I don't just want to avoid chemotherapy. I don't want to give half as much chemotherapy when I'm giving three times as much oxali. Are you playing games with me? I don't want to give oxaliplatin. These are not equal poisons. One is a worse poison in terms of long-term quality of life than the other. End of story. End of story. You know that's true. Anyone watching knows that's true. And so you would point out that this should be extremely highlighted in the manuscript that we're actually end up giving a lot more oxaliplatin. Who is highlighting this? I've heard crickets on this issue. That's point number one. Got, I got some other points for you. They're going to get good. It's going to get real good. Number two. Next slide. We acceptable. We said, so we're doing a, a 
two to one randomized phase two randomized control trial. The primary endpoint is what? It's non-inferior DFS or RFS, recurrence free survival. It's non-inferior. Non-inferiority means that the lower bound of the 95% confidence interval of the difference is above the delta or margin. That's what a non-inferiority study means. And if you want to learn more about that, read the non-inferiority paper in JNCCN by me and Allison Haslam, or read the non-inferiority editorial I wrote to a paper in JGIM a couple of years ago, which is a brilliant paper by Scott Aberegg. Uh, and probably, uh, you know, I really think that, that that sort of editorial really fleshes out non-inferiority. You need to learn more about non-inferiority. Um, or, or read the non-inferiority paper by Foho, myself, and Mauricio Borotto in Lancet Oncology from maybe about five, six years ago. But non-inferiority, you're basically asking the difference between the two arms. There's some difference. And there's some confidence interval around that difference. And the lower bound of that confidence interval around that difference has to be above what you think is an unacceptable loss of efficacy. And what's that margin or delta, that unacceptable loss of efficacy? They say it's 8.5% at two, at two years. 8.5%. That is, next slide. Oh, well, I'm coming to that. That's pretty big. And here's why it's big. This is mosaic. Next slide. Mosaic. Mosaic is the reason why you give Oxali in stage three, people, okay? This is why we're giving it. And in stage three, the addition of Oxali Platinum 5-FU has a, this is, of course, three years, not two years, but take it, you know, okay, it would actually be even worse if it was two years, 6.6%. We're willing to give Oxali for 6.6% DFS, and now you're saying you're willing to lose an 8.5% DFS? Are you out of your mind, 8.5%? Next slide. Your margin is too damn big. It's too big. It's disgustingly big. It's so big, it's an insult. 8.5% DFS sacrifice? You're willing to make that sacrifice? Then why don't you, you know, I right here, a third arm of prayer might fall inside it. You could randomize people to current standard of care, or the other arm is prayer. We find out they have stage two, and we just pray. We pray that it doesn't come back. And you might even, that in trial, might even have a fall within an 8.5% confidence interval, 8.5% margin. You might even get that. It might, I, I don't, I mean, I'm very curious. You might even have that happen. Um, I couldn't calculate it for a complex reason because we don't really know the counterfactual to all these things. But I think it's not actually so crazy to think that literally prayer may be non-inferior to this with this, this study design. What does that say when you make a margin that's so ridiculously big you're going to succeed by default? What does that say to me? What does that say to me? That says to me, I'm going to come to this in my final slides, but I really don't like this. I know you're playing a game with me. And you can fool a lot of the people, but you're not going to fool me. And you're not going to fool people who watch this show and listen to this channel and, and, and read my book. All right. Here's what they find. Looks the same. Okay, RFS is the same. The other point I want to make here is it's much better than people expect. Why is it much better than people expect? Remember that thing that says rethinking adjuvant chemotherapy, saying that things are so much better now because of better staging, better pathology, better stage migration, better pet, uh, you know, all those things? Well, lo and behold, lo and behold, that 2016 JCO comments and controversy is quite right. All right, next slide. One of the points I want to make here, and I actually calculated it out, and then later I saw that they had reported in the manuscript, so good for them but people haven't pointed this out. This is the in the arm of people who got CTDNA as the thing that proscribed therapy, where 45 people got chemotherapy by CTDNA positivity, and the rest of the people didn't get chemotherapy. The point I want to make here is they show you that, look, even if you're CTDNA positive, and even when you get chemotherapy, your risk of recurrence is higher than if you were CTDNA negative. But if you're CTDNA negative, your risk of recurrence is not 0%. It's not a perfect biomarker. Your risk of recurrence at 36 months is 6.6%. 6.6%. And then the other thing is what percent of people were CTDNA positive, 45? 
And what percent of people were ctDNA negative? 246 out of 291. The vast majority of people are, are ctDNA negative. And what this actually means is, next slide, that the raw number of people who are recurring, there's more people recurring in the ctDNA negative arm than the positive arm. I calculated it to be 6 and 16, but actually in the paper they say it is 8 and... Um, 8 and 16 or 8 and 15? Somebody can correct me in the comments, but it's about the same. But more people who are ctDNA negative are recurring than ctDNA positive people. So in terms of just the raw number of cumulative events, I mean, I think this tells you something that, you know, if you want to deal with recurrence and, and avert recurrence, you're still missing the majority of it with this method. Next slide. This compares negative ctDNA in low clinical risk patients. Those are the ones in whom I think they're not getting chemotherapy and they have low risk of recurrence. That's the blue line. And then positive ctDNA pa pa patients who did get chemotherapy, that's the red line. And negative ctDNA patients at high clinical risk. And they didn't get chemotherapy, but their risk of recurrence is rather, you know, subst I mean, it's not nothing. It's not nothing. This is the raw risk. And there are a lot of them. There's 89 of them. If somebody looks at this graph and then they say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do ctDNA. Anyone positive gets chemo per dynamic, but anyone negative who's still at high clinical risk, I think, you know, 86% DFS at 36 months is unacceptable. I'm also going to add chemotherapy to those people. And you know, people are, I'm about to prove to you, people are going to start doing things like this. Now we're talking about 46% of people in this, in this trial and this arm are going to get chemotherapy and it's actually going to be more chemo. It's going to end up giving more chemo than the control arm or standard management, which is the whole pre prima facie, the benefit of this was to give less chemo. Point number four, if you did this, you would give more chemo. And I do think in the real world, when you unleash the Kraken, when you let this loose, this is closer to what you're going to get. Point number five, there's another breakdown with T4 versus T3. We all know T4 not as good as T3. It's worse. That's why it's got the four, not the three. Okay, it's not so hard. Okay, but in this figure, if you're T4, negative ctDNA, you had a higher risk of recurrence than if you were positive ctDNA getting chemotherapy. Uh, that's, a, that's a fair caveat that one got chemo one did. Okay, but these are the numbers, and this is what you see on the screen. Next slide. This is somebody, I don't know, this person, but I think this is a point that I think a lot of people will interpret. My take-home points from Dynamic. For truly high-risk patients, T4, do not skip chemo even if ctDNA negative. For low-risk patients, positive ctDNA seems reasonable to offer chemo. Bottom line, if, I, if positive, I trust the test. If negative, I'm still suspicious. This is what he's saying. He's already moved there. And what does this mean? If you take him at his word, what does this mean? Point number five, 33 people plus 45 people out of 291 or 26% of people will get chemotherapy. If you did what Mr. Jones, Dr. Jones suggests, if you did this, you will have the identical percentage of people getting chemotherapy as in the control arm of this study, which was 28%. You're not sparing anyone chemo. And this is exactly I think, I mean, I'm not critical of him. I think he's doing what will actually happen when this company gets this approval. We will not cut down on chemotherapy. We will likely increase the chemotherapy usage because people will be thinking like this. They will be. And there should have been, I think, other ways you could design the study to really capture the clinical question, which is if you give this information in addition to this histopathologic information, if you let that loose, that's the inner investigational arm because that's what we're about to do and compare that to standard of care where you don't give them that information. And I suspect you're going to get more chemotherapy and you're not going to improve the DFS any better than the control because I don't think we really even know how much DFS gains we're getting. And more importantly, we haven't even talked about OS, which is itself a huge can of worms in stage two where you can have null DFS results and OS decrements even in stage two, okay? Jeremy Jones, thank you for making this point. My point number five, I don't think you're saving chemotherapy, especially when doctors get a hold of this. Okay, point number six. 
In total, eight out of 86 patients, 9% with deficient mismatch repair tumors received adjuvant chemotherapy. And that was uh, six of whom, including four in the, in the uh, CTDNA group, were treated with oxaliplatin chemotherapy. Um, so we got eight people, um, uh, you know, I guess what I would say to this is, I, 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 don't think, I don't think they know for sure that full FOX stage two deficient mismatch repair genes benefits from that treatment, that, that, that oxaliplatin overcomes the fluoropyrimidine decrement of, of microsatellite instability uh, high or, or mismatch repair deficiency. I don't think they know that for sure. And I think we're, we're, we're getting into sort of some, some dangerous territories here. Broader points. Here are my broader points. Let me bring this all together. Very complicated paper, non-inferiority study, you know, a, current, a standard of care that's currently being done that's based on very, very squishy evidence. You come in with your new blood test. You're having the amount of chemotherapy. You're running an NI trial phase two with a margin so fucking big you can park a school bus in it, okay? You're running a shitty statistical plan. Sorry to say it's totally shitty, unacceptable. It's bigger than what you have taken as a benefit in Mosaic, and you know that, so don't play games with me. This is absolutely unacceptable. If I were on the IRB, I would halt this study for that reason alone, that that margin is not an acceptable loss uh, of efficacy. Go ask a pa patients are of course going to jump on adjuvant for less than that. Now you want to cut that anyway. It's so bad. Okay, here are my broader points. One, you don't see what they're doing. Do you see? Do you see what they're doing? Let me tell you what they're doing. Come close. Come close. Oh, I can't make the camera come. come close. I'm telling you what they're doing. We are going to hemorrhage money to these companies. They're going to claim all the market share. If I was a consultant for these companies, and by the way, I'm not saying I've closed the door to that. No, I just can't. Okay, but if I were a consultant, I know how you, you could bleed the healthcare system so badly. Here's what you'll do. It's so, so easy to bleed in medicine. You bleed them for billions. Okay, here's what you do. One, any situation in oncology where a therapy is offered based on uncertain data, hello, we got a few of those. Okay, we got a few of those. And that therapy might not actually work or have a very modest effect size, that's where you pounce. I don't know. I don't really know who is benefiting from adjuvant chemotherapy, 5-FU alone, or oxaliplatin addition in stage two. There's lots of changes. We're looking at data from 19 diggity two. Now it's the modern world. We have better PET CT, better pathologists. They're counting more nodes. They're cutting the nodes better. They're looking in the nodes better. All that matters. All that matters. And that's why recurrence rates are much lower now. All this stage migration, we're jumping bins all the time. Will Rogers effect. And we really don't know the effect size here. You get any space like this, and there's so many spaces. Just go around, go look at lung, go look at breast. You're going to find a lot of spaces, okay? You move in there with a genetic or circulating or molecular or whatever serum blood test, whatever you want, and the test can be totally worthless. Here's the beauty, okay? The test could just be a coin flip, okay? The test could just like, as long as you have a test that you know only in about 45 out of 300 people, it comes back positive or like one, six people. You know, you know about 15% of the time it's gonna be positive. It could just be a random 15%, okay? You just make your test be totally, it could just be a, like a random noise generator, okay? But if you know 30% of people on the old fashioned way will get chemo and then you just set your test, like if, if, I, if I knew that 30% of people were about to get chemo on average, and they do know that that goes into the power calculation, the conventional method, I would just make my random number generator be like 20. I'm lower than that, but I'm not that much lower. So like one in five randomly will pick those people. And then you give them the chemo and you run a non-inferiority trial with a big margin. So even if you miss, you're not giving it to the right people, you're still gonna win because you'll be well within that margin. You always win with this method. And then later someone may come along um, uh, and say, um, 
few people are going to go closer to get it too. Oh, and then this is the best part. And then somebody comes along after the fact and they say that even though the, that test was negative, there's still a few more people I want to give chemo to. So you're actually not even saving chemotherapy in the broader use. Okay. So this is brilliant. Brilliant. You got your test out there. You're making tons of money. Nobody's getting fewer chemotherapy because they're adding it to T4 anyway, like that dude said. And we have no idea if we're actually giving it in a better way than we were at the outset. And nobody is winning except you. You're winning a lot of money. The patient's not winning. The doctor's like, oh, their mind is all confused. They don't really understand all this. But you're winning a lot of money. This is what you do. You're going to, I mean, what are you talking, are we joking? I'm not, I'm not, I'm being a little facetious, but this is going to happen. I promise you. This is, even if everyone is perfectly, um, a good person and wants to do the right thing, the way the incentives are in the system, that what I'm talking about right now is inevitable. We have so many things in oncology. We haven't updated or spruced up the evidence in 30, 40 years or 20, 30 years. Those are places where we don't even know what we're doing or what we're getting. And you know, in many of these settings, we either do it or don't do it. We take into account the person in front of us. We use these crude scores and metrics that you swoop into any of these things and you undercut them, give a little less chemo, but with a big margin, you're going to claim the market share. That's the way they're going to do it. I mean, if I were to, I mean, I guess I would say that I wouldn't, I mean, I hate to say this. I think it's very bad for patients. It's very bad for society. It's very, very, very bad. And I'm going to talk about how we can do better. But if you were in this space, I would say uh, you're going to throw down some money. You're going to get a huge windfall. I mean, this is where we are. Solution. Here was the real solution. Okay. People always say, oh, you criticize studies. How do you solve it? It's easy to solve. Come on. Come on. You know, yeah, it's, it, I mean, first you have to understand the problem, which I hope you've understood by now. Here's how you solve it. The first step should be, in a, it, you have to, if you want to do some of these studies where you omit chemotherapy, you got to go in a space where there's first, first of all, there's widespread agreement that treatment helps and how much it helps. If you were going to go into the space, go into the space of the stage three people in whom it is unequivocal that they're going to get full Fox three or six months or something like that. Go into that space and try to peel back chemotherapy in that space. Um, have an arm in your randomized control trial of doing less than your genetic test and see if that's non-inferior. What about a third arm of this study? So we have histopathology, that, that's one, and then the genetic test, prescribing therapy. And a third arm where 50% of the things that are high risk, you know, the most dubious things like, I don't know, um, uh, oh my God, I mean, there are just so many of them that they keep tumbling out. But you pick the most dubious ones and you say, don't give chemo for those dubious ones. So one, you have 28% chemo, one 15%, and one, you probably get like 18% chemo. And if that's also non-inferior, then why the hell do I have to pay for your expensive test? I can just omit a couple of the things that were once hitherto considered high risk based on very poor quality retrospective data. And now I don't need to do that. Okay. Run superiority studies instead. Take people who weren't going to get chemo. Just take the stage two people who the doctor said, I ain't giving that person chemo. Take those people, run the blood test on them. Take just the ctDNA positive people and randomize them to chemo, no chemo, and prove a DFS and OS benefit. Do it that way. Why didn't they do it that way? They know that doing it that way is not so easy to do, and they may not get a win so easy. It's much more easy to get a non-inferiority study with a margin so big I can park fucking 10 cars in and then get my win. Okay, um... Do a study in people who won't get chemo and prove to me that they benefit from chemo. That's another way to do it. And if you really want to do a study where you omit chemo, then take people in whom there is no dispute there's a benefit from chemotherapy and it's big, like the stage three people. And by the way, your margin can't be bigger than the mosaic trials benefit. I hope you know that. 
point number seven. The last point of this video, very complicated. I encourage you all to watch it again and see if you disagree with me. And if you do disagree with me, you can send me an email at www.nikkprasad.com, contact me link, or plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Um, but I think uh, this is pretty right. My thinking on this is right, I think. I mean, that's my bias. I thought about it for a little bit and ruminated. Point number seven. Is it illegal? Is it illegal to include astute commentary in ASCO? Is it? Is there a rule that we as oncologists have to just always fluff each other up? Fluff each other up with our with every study? Is it illegal? When they pick the person who comments on a study like this, should you pick a colorectal cancer expert? Or should you pick someone who spends a lot of time thinking about trials and non-inferiority or somebody who spends a lot of time on methods? Is it illegal to pick somebody who might actually know what they're talking about and say something critical? I don't know. But I don't think they do that. And I think the incentives are so perverse. I mean, if you're an investigator in, in colorectal cancer, your whole career is wedded to being a cheerleader for these kinds of products and uh, and using more genetic and blood-based ctDNA and blah 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 blah. You know, I want to use it. I would be cool. Make my trial have more correlates and blah 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 blah. And you're not really in a position to to insert to have informed criticism. And then the other thing is, we didn't even teach it to you in medical school. We didn't teach it in medical school. People who did MPHs may not have learned it. It's a very tough skill to develop, um, and is really kind of self-taught. Uh, currently to date the only thing that i think will help you and and uh and 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 i it's not much of a conflict of interest because to be honest with you i made i make less than i would than minimum wage i think writing this book for how much time i put into it and how much money i've made um it's not a, it's not a, it's not a bestseller okay it's a book that's made because it's really trying to teach you for my own sake because i don't want to listen to nonsense i want to listen to better critical commentary read the book malignant please read it you'll learn i mean if you thought this video was insightful in any way or said something that you didn't already hear at asco read this book you will be better if you read this book you will be better at reading clinical trials and you will be well on your way to having all the tools in your toolbox of how to read and understand this so that's my video that's it that's a wrap. It's the dynamic study. I think the reality is when this, when this product is available, there ain't nobody going to use it in lieu of clinical decision-making. No one's going to use it in lieu of clinical decision-making. They're going to use it in addition to clinical decision-making. And that was the way we should have run the study. We should have done a randomized control trial, clinical decision-making, maybe for stage two, versus clinical decision-making plus CTDNA, adding people on to treat, and then do a superiority study and showing there's a DFS benefit by doing it this way. I don't think, realistically, and that person's comment that, uh, was it Mr. Dr. Jones? I don't know who this person is, but that person's comment was right. That's what people are gonna do. They're not gonna stop doing it in the person they're doing it in. They're gonna do it in somebody they don't doing it in. That's what they're gonna do. Of course they're gonna do that. And he's right, that's what they're gonna do. And so it's actually not gonna save chemotherapy. It's gonna be more chemotherapy, more tests. and. I don't know if we're better off. And I honestly don't know if, I mean, I really do think prayer might have fallen within that non inferiority margin. I don't know. Um, so, you know, it's bad. It's, it's really, it's really painful to watch. Mm. I mean, it's a broader point about society, a society that simultaneously does these kinds of studies to pay for like multi-billion dollar products. But when you go to like a school cafeteria and you see like the quality of the food that we're feeding children and it's like, you know, terrible. Um, 
Uh, and you look at a country like France or, 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 or Switzerland, where they put a lot more into early childhood and a lot less into this kind of thing. I mean, what, what are we to think? This is a, we live in a system that literally reallocates capital from huge groups of people to the shareholders of particular companies and doesn't actually do what's best for people. So that's what I think. So if you like this video, you know what to do. Like, subscribe, comment, leave a message below. If you're listening on the audio podcast, you really want to go to the video, watch all my slides. And uh, I promise pretty much every paper that's coming in the New England Journal, I'm going to try to review on this uh, YouTube channel and on the Plenary Session podcast feed. Until next time.